The sermon text this morning is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. You know, social scientists will say that the greatest threat to humanity, the greatest threat to humanity is not having a purpose to life, uh, to feel as if life is meaningless. It's the greatest threat. Perhaps some of you back in high school and you read Greek mythology, you remember the story of uh, Sisyphus, the great king of Corinth, who exercised treachery against the gods and uh, they punished him. They punished him by making him roll a large stone up a hill and by its weight it would roll down and he would have to roll it up and it would roll back down the next day. And every day his life was relegated to pushing a rock up a hill only to have it roll back down. In other words, they saw the purposelessness and the meaninglessness of life as being crushing to humanity. This isn't just in Greek mythology, it's also in humanity. Many of you know the name Michael Phelps, most decorated Olympian of all time. At the end of his career, he was a, a great swimmer. At the end of his career, he actually contemplated suicide. He didn't know what life would be outside of the pool. In fact, he says these words, he says, I just thought the world would be better off without me. I figured that the best thing to do would just be to end my life. So much can the purposeness of life crush us. Do you know what the meaning of life is? Do you know why you exist? Do you know why you're here? Do you have a purpose and a goal of living? These aren't questions just for the first year philosophy student at the university. This is a question we all ask. Why do you think men in their mid to late 50s want to go out and buy a sports car and put gel in their hair and wear unusually tight blue jeans? You know, they're struggling with life. I didn't buy a sports car and I'm still wearing slacks. <laughs> Hadn't hit me yet. Do you know the purpose of living? This is where Ecclesiastes comes in to help us. It's going to be a guide to us to lead us to understand the value of life. Ecclesiastes is a different type of book. It's, it's wisdom literature. You know, wisdom literature isn't like the other parts of the Old Testament. 
You know, wisdom literature is it's more personal. You're not going to see Abraham. You're not going to see Moses or David in the pages. You're not going to hear the history of Israel in these pages. You're just going to hear about life. This is why, in fact, many people who aren't used to reading the Bible like to read Ecclesiastes and Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, the other, the other books of wisdom literature. They're grittier. They're, they're more tangible. We feel them more. But when we read Ecclesiastes, you're going to feel like uh, th there's a degree of cynicism or pessimism. There's a darkness to it or foreboding. I hope to work that out of your system. There is that. There is a sense of, does life really matter? Uh, Ecclesiastes is not like, it's not linear, like a math problem where there's a clean answer. It, it rambles, it bounces along, much like our lives. Now, this book itself, as you read it, it, it has a prologue, the first 11 verses, where we're kind of introduced to the preacher and, and really the premise of his sermon. So that's what he is. He's a teacher, preacher. And then there's the bulk of his material that we go up through the middle of chapter 12. And there's an epilogue. There's an epilogue that's going to tie things up. That's where the pot of gold is going to be. It's like an inductive sermon. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Here it is right here. And that's how we're going to work through this book. Now, you, you may have noticed out in the foyer, we have these things. I think they're going for a, a good sale for five bucks a piece. But it, it'll have the text of Ecclesiastes on the one side and then a blank page. I encourage you, if you want to get one, to do it. And then as we go through this, you can read it. And you can be writing down as you pray through it, learn it. You can be writing down thoughts. For me, it's helpful to sometimes journal the ideas I'm having. It helps me to remember them, even express them more clearly. So that's out there. If we've run out and there aren't any out there, we'll be happy to order more. Now, the way we're going to look at this prologue, though, is, is, is a couple things. We're going to look at the preacher. We're going to meet the preacher, greet the teacher kind of thing in verse 1. You see in verse 1, he introduces. It's like an editor comes along and he introduces this preacher. And then in verses 2 through 11, he's going to state his case. He's going to explain why we have a problem finding the meaning of life in this world. He's going to say, this is what's happening. You're looking for meaning in the wrong place. And he's going to raise that. So there's going to be the preacher. We're going to meet him. The problem of the meaning of life, we're going to see in the balance of it. And then I'll give you some pastoral concerns or perhaps um, ideas for you to walk out even this week. So look with me in verse 1. Let's meet this preacher. In verse 1, he says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. So you kind of see an editor writing that, or a compiler. Now, most often, traditionally, we see the author of Ecclesiastes as Solomon, which kind of makes sense. You see there he's the son of David, he's the king of Jerusalem. Uh, you see in a couple different places, in, in 1.13, I think it is, in 2. Uh, 16, uh, that he is a man with unsurpassed wisdom. That would be Solomon. And you see the lifestyle that he leads is quite lavish, at least in the first two chapters. That would indicate Solomon as well. The problem that some people have is he doesn't say it's Solomon. In his other books, he identifies himself as the author in Song of Solomon and the Proverbs. But he doesn't hear. It leads some to think, well, you know what? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a, another descendant of David. Uh, but that seems hard to believe because when he does say, like in chapter 2, he says, so I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. This is the testimony of the preacher. That sounds a little arrogant when you have Solomon in your line. And so most people, you know, they, they think, well, if it's not Solomon, who would it be? Maybe it was a philosopher. Maybe it was a teacher. 
who was giving the wisdom of Solomon, using Solomon as an example on, on how to find the meaning of life. Well, we don't know because it's not said to us. I'd probably go with the traditional route, which is that it's Solomon speaking to us. And what Solomon is doing is he's preaching to us. The word Ecclesiastes is actually Greek, and it means assembler or gatherer, and the implication is of a religious gathering. So he's going to preach to us a sermon. Now that raises the question, how well do you listen to sermons? Now if you come to sermons, perhaps inadvertently or even naively, like you're going to a restaurant, and you come and you think, well, I'm hungry, I hope it's going to be something good. You sit down, you may eat, you may assess whether it was good or not. I encourage you, if you take that approach to listening to sermons, there is much to lose. There's much to lose. Listening to sermons is hard work. You have to bring something, right? An effective sermon is because you, I, I have to be prepared, no doubt. I have to be studied, have to have it organized, but you must bring Attention, a willingness to listen, a willingness to persevere through point after point or application that may not land with you. And you know how difficult it is in conversation. If you've been married 10 years, to get a point across to your spouse sometimes isn't as easy as you may think. It's the same thing in preaching. So I don't use notes. I want to converse with you. I want this to be a dialogue. You're silently working through with me. Does that fit? Is that right? Can I do that? Should I do that? You know, th that's where you bring. There's a humility that's required. I may be saying things that you already know. Maybe you need to hear them again. I know it's hard. It's a very difficult thing. After all these years of preaching, I can say it is hard to listen properly to a sermon. There have been, admittedly, a few times that we've gone to pastor's conferences and pastors' conferences are great because they bring the best preachers. I haven't been asked one lately to speak at one. They bring the A-list preachers, and they bring their greatest game going. And there have been a few times where I have perhaps gotten a little drowsy. And some of the younger staff, by the way, have done the thing with their eyes, you know. They start going like this. I even see you do it sometimes. <laughs> they haven't fallen out of the chair yet. But uh, we have missed a few sermons before because we've been sleeping. So I get it. I get it. So, so I want you to know that, that I know that it's hard work preparing a message. I know it's hard work listening to it, particularly when it goes on for 30 or 40 minutes when you're not used to that. But there's much to gain. You make the sermon good, actually. There's a lot of sermons that technically did not do a super job but I've profited deeply because I want to hear what God has to say through whatever man is speaking from the pulpit. So you will make them good. So this is the idea. This is the preacher. It's Solomon. He's going to preach to us a sermon. And, and the sermon that he's going to preach, remember now we're in the prologue, he's going to show us the problem of trying to find the meaning of life. So maybe you don't know the meaning of life right now, or maybe you're uncertain about it. Well, let me show you two problems that he's going to address in the rest of this book. The first problem with trying to find meaning in life, in this life, is that it's brief. In other words, the problem is, how do we find meaning here, kind of under the sun? How do we find meaning? It's going to be hard because it's brief. There's a brevity to life. Look with me in verse 2. In verse 2, he says, vanity of vanities. 
says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That is not the way you're taught to begin a sermon in preaching class. This guy could literally make Eeyore of Winnie the Pooh seem like an eternal optimist. I mean, th this is a bad way to start. Hey, listen, life's going to be hard, then you're going to die. So that's basically the message I've got for you. Now, there's more than that. We've got to understand vanity. Uh, vanity, uh, some translations, NIV, I think, translates it as meaninglessness. Everything's meaningless. I don't like that, but because I don't think that really speaks to the whole of the issue. I do think that there are things that are meaningful in this world, and, and we'll get to that. I, the, the more strict translation would be vanity would be like a vapor, mist. You know, think brevity, think transience, think you know, breathing on a cold winter morning. You see it and then you don't. Or, or extinguishing a candle, and the smoke is there and then it's gone. Uh, think of it as, as quickly fading. You know, our beauty fades, our bodies age, our lives give way to death. That, 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 that brief kind of existence. In fact, in Psalm 144, the psalmist writes, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. So when we were in Ecuador, a few, four of us went down. Uh, we were way high up in the mountains. I don't know how high we were, but it was high. Uh, because we were standing outside the building that we were uh, teaching in. And clouds were coming through. Now, I was so excited because, you know, I always see clouds from airplanes. You can't go out and touch them, obviously. But I'm seeing the clouds come to us. And I'm thinking, this is going to be cool because they're not Cottonell. I'll just say that. But I, I wanted to grab it. And, and so and it's tangible. It's real. It's right in front of me. And I grabbed it. And, and it was so elusive. That's the nature of brevity. It's elusive. Nothing lasts. Nothing stays. Nothing remains. When we try to get meaning and value out of wealth or wisdom or, or, or the work that we do, it, it's like elusive. It, it, it just passes through your fingers. You can't hold on to it. In fact, in the psalmist writes in 39, he says, Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. This is the brevity of life. This is why you cannot get meaning and value. You can't find happiness and contentment out of the things in this world. Why? It, they're just the brevity of life. It just goes right on through. But there's a second reason you can't find meaning in this life, in the things that we naturally pursue. And that is because of the futility of it all. The futility. Look with me in the question in verse 3. He asks a question here of us. He says, what do you gain by all the toil at which you toil under the sun? In other words, in this life, what can you gain? So that word gain is an accounting term. It's a financial term. Uh, so, so in an accounting land, you know, we, we, we count up all the income. We have gross income, and then you, you have to pay your expenses to generate the income. And then there's a net profit. There's a gain. There's a bottom line number. That's what he's talking about here. So at the end of your life, after all your toil, what do you profit from? What do you keep? What is yours to have? Well, the implication is nothing because of the brevity of life. There's nothing that you get to keep. Now, looking at this world, you know, putting your money in wealth or wisdom or work or sex or success or whatever is your, is your you know, love du jour. You know, th there, is, there is no gain to that. Now, we have to understand under the sun. That's a really important word. You're going to see it 29 times in this book. 
under the sun is talking not about living a secular life. It's not simply about those people out there that live as if God doesn't exist. This is being preached to the people of God. Uh, you're going to see God throughout this book. Now, I think under the sun, what he means is this life outside of God's presence in Eden. It's the fallen world. It's the corrupted world. Under the sun is the, the thorns and the thistles of life. It's being apart from God, the struggles, the trials that we have. I think this is what he means by under the sun. That if you try to draw meaning from the things under the sun, it'll be a futile. You won't gain anything. You won't end up with anything in reserve. In fact, this, the writer says this, I hated life, for what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity. It's a striving after the wind. Have you ever tried to run after the wind? Maybe when you're a kid, you try to run. Try it. That's what he's saying. Try it. If you think that you can gain something by pursuing the things of this world as if they were gods to you, then you will have nothing. Don Carson is a New Testament scholar and he writes these words. He says, the preacher is not defending naturalism or atheism. He looks at this life lived under the sun or in this broken world. He'll prove that even though we may attempt to find meaning in life through our toil at gaining wisdom or gaining pleasure, wealth, great career, popularity, status, it'll leave us frustrated and unhappy. It's brief and it's futile. That's what it is. It's a disordered world. It's apart from God. So here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think you're on a treadmill and you're just walking on the treadmill. Maybe you're running on the treadmill now and you're starting to labor. You're starting to breathe a little heavy. You're starting to sweat. And, and you keep on that thing for 30 minutes and you're running and you're sweating and you're exhausted. While I admit that there may be some cardiovascular help for you, where have you gone? Nowhere. That's what he's saying. You go nowhere. You end up with nothing. At the end, you're where you were. It's incredible. But he, but he gives reasons to defend his premise here. Now, I, I say this to you because I think it's intuitive to us that we think if I just get a better job, if I get a better spouse, if I get a better salary, if I get a better house, if I get uh, better grades in school, if I was better looking, if I had a better body, then I would be happy. Then I would be content. Then I could sit back and say, ah, finally. Th that's what we strive for. That's what you do. We all struggle with that. You see someone drive by in a new car and you just think, man, if I could just get rid of this jalopy, then at least it would be better. Yeah, th there's always something. It's like the rungs of a ladder. It's intuitive to us that we just want to keep thinking it's better higher. And what he's saying is, no way. The preacher is saying, no way. Now, I want to explain why he says, no way. I, I want to be like a battering ram against the wall in your mind that wants to fight me on this. I want to knock down the wall to convince you that going up the rungs of the ladder will just put you higher, but no better. So look with me in verse 4. He says, the reason that you won't gain anything is because history doesn't change. Look what he says in 4. He says, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What he's saying is he's, he's using the, the globe here as a static point, 
And, and, and he's saying, generations come, they go. They come, they go. You know that. My great-grandparents are not here. They came, they went. My grandparents came, they went. My parents, they came, they went. Carol and I have come, and we're going to go. And my kids have come, and they're going to go. Generation comes, generations go. You're, you're given birth, you live, and you die. It's always been that way. There's never been a generation in this world where they could stop this cycle. There's no changing. People keep being born, and they keep dying. It is the way it is. We see it. All this is empirical evidence for you to see and be convinced by. But not just human history. Look at the history of nature. You know, that's what he picks up in 5 to 7. He looks at the sky, he looks at the wind, and he looks at the water. He looks at the sky and he says, look at the sun. It rises and it sets, and it hastens back to where it rises. And that word hasten, that Hebrew word, kind of means gasping. It's like the sun's getting tired. The sun is in a disordered world as well. Remember, all of creation was made futile. Thorns and thistles affected all of creation. The sun is exhausted. It rises, it sets. It rises, it sets. Look at the wind. The wind seems like it's better off because it's kind of free to move about, go anywhere it wants, but it just keeps circling. Round and round it goes. It just doesn't go anywhere. It just goes round and round. And not just the wind, what about the waters? Well, the waters, you know, the waters gather in streams, they go into the ocean, the ocean, evaporation comes up, puts them in the sky, they come down, boom. They land on the earth, they go back in the streams again. Round around. You, you know this. This is true to you, it's self-evident. How many winters have you been through when you see the spring, the buds, summer, everything blooms, fall, things begin to die, the leaves drop off? Every year, we have a Raleigh leaf collection agency here, they collect the leaves every year. They know when to collect them, October, January. They know when the trees are going to fall. Every year they do it. They can set their schedules to it. He's saying here that to pursue the things of this world, you see it in life, you see it in nature. There is a circuitous route that isn't producing. It's busy, but it's not doing anything. It's running, but it's going nowhere. But then look what he goes to in verse 8. In verse 8, he says that nothing will ultimately satisfy you. No amount of Sex, drugs, money, success. Well, sa look what he says in 8. All things are full of weariness. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. And th this is, to me, uh, most damning to those who want to find value and meaning out of life. We know shortly in life that the toy has to be replaced by the next toy. Uh, th that the car has got to be replaced by a better car. And then that car has to be replaced by a better car. Uh, th there's no satisfaction. I need one more party, one more drink, one more friend, one more experience. This is why men and women climb mountains. We want that experience. You know, if you've seen that show, The Greatest Showman on Earth, Carol and I watched it a few months back, and there's that scene, The Greatest Showman, uh, where this woman sings, and she is gifted with an incredible voice. The song is called Never Enough, Never Enough. Hear the words from it. It really speaks to humanity. She sings, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough, never be enough for me. Never, never, never be enough for me. This is the way we feel. There's no point where you finally say, aha, I've got it. There's no amount of money. Let me give you this. So Tom Brady, when he was 27 years old, he's the quarterback of the New England Patriots, and he's had a stellar career. He said these words, 
after the third Super Bowl ring, 27. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, well, hey, man, this is what it is. When I reach my goal, my dream, my life, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it all at 27. What else is there for me? This is Tom Brady. It's never enough. There's never enough. But, there's a, but the, the preacher here is just smashing the walls of our mind right now. Because he says, not only is there never enough, but there's nothing new. You, want to, you think you come up with something original and new? He says in 9 and 10, what has been, what will be. And what has been done will be done, is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which can be said, see, this is new? It's already been done in the ages before us. There's nothing new, really. Now, this is a comment on human, on our humanity. It's not saying, it's not denying the inventiveness of men or the technological changes we've had. But even in these technological changes, it's still the same. We wash clothes by hand, now we wash them by a machine. We're still washing clothes. They're still dirty. We cooked by an open fire, now we cook in an oven. We're still needing to eat. Nothing has changed. I mean, things have just gone on. If I went up to a high school team, a baseball team, and I said to these baseball players, who knows Joe DiMaggio? Who knows Ted Williams? Some of you may not know those names. They were a pinnacle of success in the very sport they're playing a generation away. They wouldn't be known. Or what do you know of the inventor of the blood bank? You'd want to know that if you're going into an operation and you'd need blood. Who knows about that man? What an invention. What a help to us to live well in this life. His name was Drew, by the way. I didn't know, but it was Drew. But we don't know. That we're forgotten. We're forgotten. And then look at the last one. The last one is there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things among those who come after. This idea that most of us will live and die in obscurity. There's, there's 7.5 billion people on this globe. If you died today, how many would know that you're gone? In 15 years, how many would know? I didn't know my great-grandparents. I didn't know my grandparents. Only two of them. How many would know? Think about it. We've forgotten the people in the past and the people in the future will forget about us. That's just the way it is. What he's trying to do is show us the problem. The problem with pursuing meaning and value in life is that it doesn't change. It doesn't last. It's elusive. It's futile. What the preacher's doing is he's trying to not espouse these truths. He's trying to expose them like smelling salts to us to get us to wake up to get us to wake up and start to realize there's got to be something more outside of this world is what he's doing. He's leading us to God. He's leading us to true meaning and value can only come from God. It can't come from the things that have been made by us or that have come from this earth. He wants us to be wise. This is the nature of wisdom literature. You know, in Scripture, there's a theme. You know, there's the fool throughout Scripture and there's the wise throughout Scripture. The fool is the one who rejects God. The fool is the one who makes his own way. He's going to make his own path. He's going to create his own destiny. That's the fool. The wise is the one that humbles himself before God and lives before God in joy. 
You see foolishness, for example, in the beginning of the garden, right, with Adam and Eve. They had it all there, right? They, it was the way it was supposed to be. There was no disorderedness to creation. It was all good, God said, very good. But you have the couple, of course, they think otherwise. They played the part of the fool, and they said, no, 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 God, we can do it better, we can do it different. We're going to do it our own way. They played the part of fool. And for their foolishness, they were put into exile. They were put into what? Thorns and thistles, futility, brevity of life. They were the fool, and they lived the part of the fool. But then God in his mercy moves towards man. He calls Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I'll make a people through you. And then what does he do? He creates a people through Abraham, and he brings them to the land. The land is to remind us of he's taking his people back to Eden. Not exactly Eden, but a close representation of it. The temple was there. God's presence was there. It really looked like Eden. And what did the people do? Did they get it? Did they say, hey, hey, remember Adam and Eve? Let's not play the fool again. No, they played the fool again. They played the fool again because they rejected God. They went their own way. They thought they really were wiser than God. We're going to do it our way. And where were they? They ended up in exile in Babylon, back in a land of, of life, brevity of life and the futility of life. Don't you see this pattern? This pattern continues on. The wisdom literature is to lead us to God. If foolishness is the rejection of God, the ignoring of God, the rebellion of God, if that leads us into foolishness and futility, then it's the wisdom of God that leads us out of it and leads us back to Eden. That's what he's giving to us. And that's what he'll be preaching through this, through this sermon that we're going to hear. It leads us to God. It gives us meaning. That's what we're going to find in this book. I pray you join with me as we read through it. Let me, let me give you, so we've met the preacher, the preacher in verse 1, call him Solomon. Solomon has wisdom for us. He's going to give it to us in a sermon. The sermon is simply this, that if you and I try to find happiness, contentment, meaning, and value from the things of this world, even the good things, those are actually the most dangerous. Family, marriage, wealth, work, sex, status, position, being a great student, going to the perfect school. If, if those are your objects of love, you will be a man or a woman struggling with great despair, chaos in life, and a disorder. That will be the fate. So, so four considerations I want to give you. Number one is simply this. Recognize you live in a disordered world. Too many Christians I'll hear say, it's going to turn up good. It always turns up good. Don't worry. Hey, sun's always rising tomorrow. They haven't read Ecclesiastes. It's going to get better. Hey, it always turns up good. You know what? Things always land on the best side. That is not true. We live in a disordered world. All of us do. Christian and non-Christian alike. Listen, when tsunamis blow into towns on the beach, they don't select who they crush. When cancer hits, it's all. It's under the sun. We live in a disordered world. We have cancer. We have sickness. We have death. This is the markings of a world that has gone awry into foolishness from God. And we're disordered. We're disordered by the loves that we pursue. Think of the things that you've pursued with your life. 
Think of the loves that you've had, the decisions that you've made, and you look back on them now and you say how disordered they were. What was I thinking? I was the fool because I ignored God. So we live in a disorder. We're disordered people. We have disordered loves. This is what Augustine, the church father of the fourth century, said. He says we love the things of the world inordinately, inordinately, out of the ordinary. So think of the man who runs into the burning house. There's this child and there's this laptop and he grabs his laptop and takes off. Well, nobody faults them. We'd fault him. You love that inordinately. What are you loving a computer for over your own child? But when we love the things of this world, ignoring God, we're doing the same thing. We're, the full, we're, we're disordering our minds. This is why the wisdom literature is always leading us to look to God to say we need help. We cannot straighten the crooked lives we have. We can't fix the order. No amount of inventiveness. There is no amount of generation. There'll never be a generation that will order the disorder of this world. Haven't you seen that? Just read history. Are not wars followed by wars? Are, are, not, are not just tyrannical rulers followed by those same type of rulers? I, is marital struggles changed? Anger? Rage, bitterness, changed relationships. Have you seen that change? Uh, we used to kill with a club. Uh, then they sharpened it, made it a spear. Then they made it a sword. Then they used a catapult. Then they got a rifle. Then they had a cannon. We're just doing the same thing. There's a disorderness to this world. We've got to recognize. We've got to play. God, you've got to send one to straighten it out. That's what wisdom is leading us to do. So we live in a disordered world. Let's not be shocked. Number two. Consider the brevity of your life right now. I want you to consider right now that you're going to die. Listen, I'm going to be 59 in a few months. I don't know where my 50s went, frankly. I know that my kids got married, I was there, and now we've got a bunch of grandchildren, and we just love them. But I don't know where they went. I, I, I don't even, I still feel like, Carol and I joke all the time, we sit with all these young folks, you know, they're 23, 24, 25, and we think we're their peers. And, and then they tell us, you know, that they have parents that are younger than us. And then, and then I hear from my kids, they love listening to the oldies, which actually were written when I was listening to them. You know, so, so I'm sitting, it has gone very fast for me. It's gone lightning fast. And that's what James says. You know, James is actually the one New Testament book of wisdom. If you read James, it's, it's a wisdom book. He says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's what we are. Death is inevitable. It is universal. You will die unless Christ comes first. You will die. We all will. This is not morbidity. This is realism. You know, um, Herman Melville, the American uh, author of Moby Dick, said that Ecclesiastes is the truest of all books because it deals with the reality of what we face. It doesn't gloss over, it doesn't veneer over, it deals with it as it is. We're going to die. But that helps us live. This is the paradox of scripture. If you don't know that you're gonna die, you're gonna live differently. In fact, I'm reading this book by David Gibson on Ecclesiastes, it's called Living Backwards. And here's what he says. He says, you, you take the one certain thing, our death, and you work backwards into decisions and details and heartaches of our lives. And to think about them from the perspective of the end. So he's saying you can't make good decisions now if you don't know the end. If you don't know the runway is getting shorter. 
He says, I'm convinced that only a proper perspective on death provides a true perspective on life. Living in light of your death will help you live wisely, freely, generously. It will give you a big heart. It will give you open hands to enable you to relish the small things of life in deeply profound ways. That's so true. You know, a, a few years back, I read this book, A Happy Old Life. It was written by a pastor who uh, died around 1900. And, and I love the book because it was an older pastor, and he was writing it to the older folks in his congregation, and he wanted them to die well, which I really love. So I read the book, and so I got probably got a couple dozen copies, and we gave it to a bunch of our senior saints, and, and uh, we read it together, and we profited by it. We talked about it. I loved it. What was amazing was, when I read the book, I thought, i got to hand this out in premarital counseling. The young need to hear this more than the old. The old, we're looking at it in the mirror. We're getting it. We're getting it. The runway's getting short. The young need to know it. So, so we need to know the reality of our death to live well now. You cannot live a wise life if you think it goes on forever. You'll make poor decisions. You'll wait too long to make changes. When you're young, you know you're going to die. And that means that you start making some bold, free, generous, exciting decisions. Why? Because you know what the end holds for you, which is glorious. Then I would say the third point that I'd like you to consider is, is toil after that which lasts. Toil after that which lasts. You know, the question put before us is, what do you gain with all your toil with which you toil under the sun? It's a fair question, right? Jesus asked the same one, what, what does it profit you to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? You know, what, do you what do you have, okay, for all the toil that you have toiled in this life, however old you are and however hard you've worked forever, how many years you've worked, what do you have to gain for it? What do you have to show for it? What has it produced? Now, if you say to me, you know, I've taken care of some people and I've made some other people happy, remember what he just said in 4 to 11. None of that stuff in this in this world will matter. It won't carry on. There's no gain to that. Toil for that which lasts. What do I mean by this? I, I mean that we are to engage life in the reality that God exists and that we're going to stand before him. So the Westminster Catechism, many of you know that great document of these English and um, Scottish scholars helping uh, churches live rightly before God. The first question in the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? He's asking the same question I am. What is the chief end? What's the purpose of life? And the answer is to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To, to live for God's glory and to enjoy him forever. They're tied together. Now, how do we glorify God? Well, you don't enter ministry. That's not the way to do it. You don't go into ministry. You glorify God by being grateful and thankful and living with integrity where God has you. So if you're a woman in the workplace, you work with integrity. On the drive-in, you're thanking God for the gifts of intelligence and wisdom that he's given to you, and you use them for the benefit of employees and for the customer that you're serving. You speak with truth. You show honor and deference. That's a problem in Romans. The reason that we know people don't know God is because they don't honor him and they're not grateful to him. So how do we glorify God in the home? Raise children. Do the best you can in teaching them and training them in the, in the teaching and the admonition of the Lord. Or if you're a carpenter, make good tables. If you're a plumber, do a good job. Be honest. Be thankful. Be grateful. Speak to how God has gifted you. Recognize 
that you only have what he gave you and you're to use it for his glory. That, that's how we, you know, that's why Paul said, 1 Corinthians, he says, Dear brothers, be steadfast and movable. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not vanity. The things done for God, not necessarily preaching or leading a Bible study, the things done for God by caring for your family and working for justice, those things are done for God. God, I want to do this for your glory. A cup of cold water, Jesus says, wasn't forgotten. Doesn't seem like a high ministerial thing to do, and yet it received the honor of Christ himself. So, so work for things that last. Think upon God, live for God, live for his glory. And then the fourth thing I would say, and, and if you don't know what that may look like in practical ways, if my examples haven't been clear enough for you, ask your spouse or ask a friend. What would it look like for me to glorify God? I, I would like you to, I would ask you to do that. I'd submit that to you. Can you, and it, you may be already doing it, but ask them, what would it look like for me to glorify God in this life? What would it look like for me to do something that would last? Let your brothers or sisters weigh in with you. Fourth thing I would say is rejoice with me that Christ has come to make all things new. Now we're on the other side of Ecclesiastes. We're on the New Testament side of things. And, and you know, the writer was true when he said there's nothing new under the sun. The good thing is, Jesus came from outside under the sun. Jesus has come to dwell with us. Now, we've gone through Advent, and we've looked at all the promises of God that he would send a deliverer. He would send a restorer. He would send one to bring order to a disordered creation. Does it surprise you that Jesus said to the Pharisees, one greater than Solomon is now among you? Do you not think that he had Ecclesiastes in mind? One full of God's wisdom is now among you. The, the one that Ecclesiastes is clinging for and grasping for has now come. Didn't we see that in the miracles? For example, blindness is a disorder of the eye. He brings sight. He brings order. Deafness is a disorder of the ear. So he brings hearing. He brings order. Being unable to speak is a disorder of of the mouth, and yet he gives speech. Death is a disorder of life, and he gives life. Leprosy is a disorder of health, and yet he brings cleansing. Jesus, in his miracles, is rolling back the disorder of this world and bringing it about to a full order. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 8, that the creation was subjected to futility. We read that in Ecclesiastes 5, 6, and 7. It's groaning for redemption. It wants to break out of the futility of going round and round and round. And it wants to break free to be all that God has intended creation to be. That is the same for us. That is what it means to be a Christian. It means that order begins to come into your life. To to become a Christian, to come to terms with the message here that out there, under the sun, I cannot find happiness, contentment, peace, and wholeness. I can't do it. I need God to send one to bring order. And to come to that one by faith is to move towards wisdom and order. If you think about what Peter wrote. So Peter writes this in his first letter. He says, you were ransomed from the futile the vanity 
You were, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. The best that's out there will not ransom you from the futility and the brevity of life. It won't do it. No, it's with the precious blood of Christ. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, all flesh is like grass. Its glory is like the flower of the grass. All flesh, all that under the sun is like the grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The gospel brings order to us. So when we grab the gospel, or shall I say, when the gospel grabs us, when we come to faith, we understand this world is disordered. I need one to bring order, and that is Christ and his gospel. The wisdom of God is Christ. And the wisdom of God is displayed in this table, in the broken body, in the shed blood. And we have been ransomed from the feudal ways. So even in your own life, you should be able to see the order that is beginning to take place. Carol and I again talking last night about just the change in our life as we we're sitting there praying for the service and thinking about this. It's like God's brought order to our lives through the power of the gospel. That is for us. That's the hope of Ecclesiastes, longing for us to come to this. So if you're here and you haven't considered the claims of Christ, your life is disordered. You've pursued and pursued and pursued happiness and contentment in every other channel and through cars and through women and through money and through jobs and changes and grades and schools and work. Let me, let me be a friend to you and say you are on a false hunt. You will never be well fed. You'll never be satisfied. Your eye doesn't have enough seeing. Your ear won't have enough hearing. It is only through Christ alone. So we've met a preacher here. He, he wants our good. We have to listen to him. And we have a problem. The problem is that under the sun, meaning and value and contentment will not be yours. And God has designed you for more. That's why Augustine says, he says that our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. He will leave us discontented until we find rest in him. And that's his grace. So for those of you, I would like you to consider that. Let me pray for you right now and then we will orient ourselves to the table. Father, would you grant to us this wisdom? Father, not just to understand the struggle with finding meaning, but now we know that meaning can't come. Father, help us to see that. Father, move in the hearts of your, of your people here today. The visitors, help them to see the need that we have for one to come and make all things new to bring something new under the sun that had to come from outside the sun. Cause us to run to him. Lead us to run to him by faith. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening properly. I didn't see anyone fall out of the chair, and I'm grateful for that. Let me orient you to the table for just a minute because this table speaks a message that we need to hear. The table speaks, of course, as you know, the broken body, the shed blood is speaking to the salvation that Jesus has, has accomplished to reconcile sinners to God. But I want you to see something here. I want you to see that this table doesn't simply reconcile us to God, it reconciles us to each other. The table is what unites us. The gospel is what we find our unity around. And Jesus, for his glorious purposes, has called us as individual sinners into salvation, but into a church. We're called to be together as his body.
and to be one. This is this high priestly prayer in John 17, that they may be one, Father, as you and I are one. So the unity that we have is to be reflective of the unity that he has with the Father. The church is the voice of God proclaiming the gospel, but it also lives out the gospel. And the way we live out this unity is not by being the same. It's not by uniformity. It's not by agreeing with each other on politics or on secondary theological truths or on the way we dress or education. Or, that's not where our unity is. In fact, the diversity is beautiful as it gathers around this table and communion. So that's the basis of our church. We want to proclaim the gospel. We want to live the gospel. And we live the gospel by loving each other well. And so you'll find in your bulletin, if you turn there, you find the, the covenant that the members of the church sign. Now, uh, the members of the church, if you're not a member here, this is what we believe. Uh, this is what we think how church ought to be. This is how we expect our people to be. We don't require this of you because you're not a member here. But, but the, the ones that have covenanted together, remember our covenant is just a promise. So it's what you did at the altar if you got married. You made promises to each other. And we as members of this church have made promises to each other. And so these are some of the promises. Let me read, to you, uh, read these to you slowly. And I just want you to hear me read them as you read them. And I want you to think about this because we'll take a minute afterwards and just have a brief moment of perhaps confession over how we failed and, and thankfulness for how we have walked well. And we'll ask for grace this year going forward to be more committed to meeting the vows of our church membership. So I will love God's glory by attending church faithfully, giving regularly, praying earnestly for the health and the growth of the members. You now have members distributed through the month that you can be praying for each member by name, living a God-centered life, bringing up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, following the leadership of the church and submitting to the principles of restoration, when you walk in sin, seeking honest and open communication with the leadership, you initiating concerns to the leadership. I will love God's people by being slow to take offense and quick to forgive and to seek forgiveness, exercising Christian care, watchfulness others, which may mean you speak to them about things that seem hazardous to their faith, refusing to participate in gossip, Serving the church, the ministry of the church, by discovering my gifts. You have gifts. You use those for the church. Developing a servant's heart. Loving and praying. And I would even add encouraging the believers. Encouraging them with the grace that you see in their life. I will love God's world by inviting the unchurched to attend. Welcoming those who visit. Not just going to those that you feel comfortable with, but going to those that you don't know walking circumspectly in the world so that you can provide all things honest before all men in the workplace, in the community, endeavoring by example through words and service and prayer to proclaim to others. It's both. We must speak about the gospel and we must live the gospel. So let's take a minute now and, and just ask the Lord to reveal to you where are areas that you can grow, where are areas that you have grown. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.